So naturally, we'll begin this season in the beginning. Well, almost the beginning. The true beginning of our story is, that the, is the first creation poem. In this story, God introduces order to chaos. God crafts shalom from formlessness. He creates life and dwells with, with and within that which has been created. God takes pleasure in this creation. Over and over and over again in this story, in this poem, God says, it is good. This world is good. The people in this world are good. But unfortunately, the story does not end there. In chapter 2 of Genesis, there begins a second story of creation. Pastor Chris read us a portion of that story a few minutes ago. This story shifts the focus of the creation narrative. It shifts from the ordering of the entirety of the cosmos to the human experience of being. There's much more focus in this story on humanity. In fact, the name that's given to the man in this story literally means humanity. Adam means human. We also meet in this story the man's wife. This woman is given the name Eve in our Bibles. It's Chava in Hebrew, and this word Chava means life. The story of Adam and Chava, this is a story of life. This is a story of humanity. This is an archetypal narrative that speaks to universal experience. Stories like this transcend our time, our languages, our location, our geographies, because we know the truth of these stories wherever they are encountered. When we read this story, we see ourselves. We see ourselves in the characters of Adam and Eve because we have been through what they have been through. We felt what they have felt. We've been tempted and we've been tested. And if we're honest, we know that we've succumbed to those temptations. Is anyone familiar with the marshmallow experiment that was held at Stanford about 50 years ago. In 1972, Dr. Walter Michel wanted to find a way to test children's ability to be patient, to delay gratification. So he took a group of children ranging from about three to six, and one by one, he and his team put those children at a table, placed a plate in front of them, and set two marshmallows on that plate. He then explained to the children their options. Here's the deal, he said. Here are two marshmallows. I'm going to leave the room in just a moment, and I'm going to take one of those marshmallows with me as I go. Your job is to either eat the marshmallow that's left or not. If you want to eat it, go ahead, just ring the bell. I'll come back and you can eat it. But if, if you wait until I come back after I do what I need to do, I'll give you the second marshmallow. And you can eat both of them. Choice is yours. Can you imagine what happened with those children? Have any of you seen any of those videos of these kids struggling not to eat these marshmallows? How well do you think those kids resisted that temptation? There's a bunch of videos online of people recreating it with their own children. And I thought about doing that with Oliver, but I didn't this weekend. Just ran out of time. The videos are hilarious. Some of the kids are unable to take their eyes off of this marshmallow. They stare and they do not move. 
Some of them sit on their hands so that they prevent themselves from grasping out at this marshmallow. One of the little boys, my favorite, well, two favorites, one of the little boys had to get up from the table, go into the corner, and put his own face in the corner (laughs) so that he could resist the temptation of eating this marshmallow. There's another little boy who was very, very clever. He picked up the marshmallow, he hollowed it out, (laughs) ate the insides, put it back upside down, and thought that the experimenters would be none the wiser. As you might guess, most of these children did not last long. Like Adam and Eve, one after another, these children succumbed to the temptation. They ate that snack that was placed in front of them. Here's the obvious thing that we can glean from both of these stories. No matter how old we are, we're still a whole lot like those children with their marshmallows. I enlisted some volunteers to put these out for you today, and some of these volunteers ate them before you even arrived. (laughs) And no matter how many thousands of years it's been since this story of Adam and Eve were told, the story of life and humanity, we find that we're still a whole lot like them. We face temptation. Not only do we face it, but we yield to it. Just like them, we eat. We eat instead of waiting to see what fortune we might gain if we could just resist. What blessing might be bestowed if we just listened and respond with trust. There's been a lot of speculation from theologians over the years as to what exactly is so tempting about this particular fruit. My favorite reading is this. The serpent, the serpent is right. God even says as much in chapter 3, verse 22, the serpent is right. Eating of that fruit will make humanity like God. The knowledge of good and evil, of right and wrong, is a major step forward in the consciousness of our own growing children. So it is with all of us. Knowing this really does make us more like God. Humanity, though, was given a different task. Humanity was given the task of serving and preserving. The words up there were to till it and keep it. The Hebrew words are serve and preserve the creation. We were given the job of nurturing this creation. And in such a task, we would still become like God. It would take more time, but on such a path, we would still grow. Instead, Adam and Chava, life, Our humanity grasped for a faster path. They sought the destination without walking the whole road that they were given. They aspired to God's authority and God's ability to judge between good and evil without first learning what was absolutely, desperately necessary for such power. They sought that power without learning to actually love what they were given. If they had just served and preserved, they would have learned this love. They would have become more like God, more like God than this simple little snack could have ever done for them. If we would just serve and preserve this world that we're given, we might learn the same. If we nurtured our relationships, 
If we nurtured the earth which bears us, we might learn love. This story does tell us that we have a significant problem. Rather than caring for that which we have been given, we often grasp for more. We grasp for godliness without God and for salvation without grace. And we do so by the very means by which we've been told will bring us death. And in so doing, we destroy. We destroy the world around us. We exploit the earth that we've been called to preserve. We hurt each other and not just the people that we name as enemies. We brandish our guns at the innocent and the unfortunate. We use words as weapons. We even wound the ones that we love, the ones that we've promised to love through all things. Because of these choices, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And because of these choices, we no longer know the presence of that God that created us and that God that walked with us daily in that place. But I do want you to hear this. It is not that God is no longer present. God is still here. It's that we lose the ability to recognize this presence. God is still here. God is still giving. God is still creating. God is still sustaining. God is still offering grace. But because of our inability to resist these temptations, we lose the ability to identify and to actually appreciate that presence with us. While we may regret that the story didn't end at the end of that creation poem, maybe now we can appreciate that the story doesn't end here either. This story does not end in exile. Listen as I read to you from the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away, from, away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the story of God told for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our story continues. 
Our story has an answer for the brokenness that we experience, the brokenness that we even create. Jesus, who is the divine made human, experiences what Adam experienced, what humanity experiences. And Jesus gives us a response both to temptation and to what happens when we succumb to it. Directly after being baptized and having the Spirit of God descend upon him, this same Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days. For 40 days he wandered, for 40 days he fasted, and for 40 days he struggled, struggled with hunger and thirst. And in that wilderness, Jesus, like us, faced temptation. And there should be elements of this story that sound familiar. Not just similarities to the story of Adam and Eve, but another foundational story of our faith. After their own baptism in the Sea of Reeds, the Israelites found themselves in the desert where they would wander for 40 years. Throughout that time in the wilderness, they were tested. They were tempted. And in fact, the temptations that Jesus faced in his own wilderness echo and mirror the temptations that faced Israel. The Israelites faced starvation. They cried out for sustenance just as Jesus was tempted to produce bread from stone. The Israelites faced challenge after challenge to their ability to survive, wondering if this God would save them, just as Jesus stared down from the top of that temple, perhaps wondering if his path too would lead to death. The Israelites faced the challenge of finally entering the land that they had been promised just as Jesus is offered his own kingdom. Even receiving a promise can be a temptation. Will they, as a nation, follow the God that had led them there? Or will they grasp for more, reaching for idols of political and military power? The people that God had rescued from slavery with power, with might, failed to trust that that same God would continue to care for them. Jesus, however, did not. In that wilderness, Jesus responded to temptation with faithfulness. Jesus trusted that the God that had called him son at the moment of his baptism, the God that had led him into that wilderness, would remain faithful to him. Jesus responded with faithfulness. Now let's go back to Adam and Eve for a moment. There's a word that you might be surprised to know is not found in the story. In all of this narrative, whether it's in the original Hebrew or in our English translations, this one particular word is not used a single time. But for much of our Christian history, we've interpreted this story only through the lens of this one word. The word is obviously sin. Now, this is an important word, and clearly we are dealing with sin in this story, but this isn't a story just about sin. Sin is not the main character, not the main concept. This is a story about God, God's creation, and God's people. This is a story about relationship. God created 
God loved. God nurtured. God gave his children instruction, knowing that if they listened, it would lead to abundant life. But God's children didn't listen. They failed to trust that God would be faithful. We, we fail to trust that God will be faithful. And the result of this is broken relationship. Let me ask you what, what I find, at least, to be an interesting question. What was the sin in the story of Adam and Eve? We know the easy part of the answer. Adam and Eve ate that fruit after being told not to. But what if there's a little more to it? What if the sin was in the action of hiding? Adam and Eve hide their nakedness. They felt shame for the bodies that God had designed and given them. They hid from God when God came to visit. What if the sin in this story was the intentional attempt, attempt to separate themselves from God? What if the sin was in the blaming? Adam blames Eve, the woman that God had made. Eve, in turn, blames another of God's creations. What if the sin was the intentional attempt to separate themselves from one another? Sin breaks our relationships with God, with each other, and with creation but thanks be to God that we know that the story does not end there. Jesus gives us a model, gives us a faithful response to temptation. Even as Jesus hung on the cross, he's tempted again. We hear echoes of these days in the wilderness. If you are the son of God, shouts the crowd. If you are the son of God, save yourself from this cross. And we know that Jesus responded even here with faithfulness. Jesus trusts that God will be faithfully faithful and faithfully faces even death. When Dr. Michel conducted his experiments 50 years ago, his theory was that the kids with the least patience those that succumb to temptation most easily would grow up making more bad, rash decisions than the other children. These kids had made a simple decision to eat a snack, and they were judged to be more prone to academic failure, to health issues, to obesity, to legal trouble, and more. And for decades, report after report confirmed Dr. Michelle's findings. However... A new report was published in 2020 claiming that Dr. Michelle's hypothesis was wrong. The experiment was flawed and the results of the experiment were inaccurate. Can you guess who was one of the co-authors on this new study? It was Dr. Michelle. Dr. Michelle was able to reevaluate his own work, decades, decades of work and admit his error. I find this to be a miracle in itself. 
a model for us to follow. Even better than that, though, these kids weren't fated to a life of failure for eating one simple snack. The stories that we've explored today say the same thing about you and me and us. In his letter to the Romans, Paul makes the claim that just as sin entered the world and gained dominion over all in humanity, over all in Adam, so also is sin defeated and eradicated from all in Jesus, all in this human one. You, my friends, need not be fated to a life of failure for eating a simple snack. When temptation comes, and it will, I encourage you to respond with trust. Trust that the God who has created you and set you free will continue to be faithful to you. Trust that the God that brought Jesus back from the dead is still resurrecting. Respond to temptation with the same faithfulness as Jesus. After all, our goal as Christians, our goal as the church, is not to ensure that we have sustenance. It's not to ensure our own survival, and it's definitely not to ensure that we have power and authority. Our goal in the church is to be like Jesus. Our goal is faithfulness. And even when we do grasp for more, even when we do yield to temptation, we can still trust that our God in Jesus has covered that as well. The season of Lent commemorates these 40 days in the desert, these 40 years in the wilderness. As we begin our own wandering here, I have an invitation for you to begin with. We know, we know that we've succumbed to temptation. Let us honestly acknowledge it. Let us acknowledge our tendency to sin, our tendency to break the relationships that we have, our tendency to seek our own salvation outside of the realm of shalom. Let us confess, at least to God, maybe even to those that we have hurt, if it's appropriate. And having acknowledged the fact that we do fall short let us not then be governed by it. Again, as Paul says in Romans, let us present ourselves as instruments of grace and love for sin and death no longer have dominion. Let us choose life in shalom. Let us move toward the reconciliation that has been made available. Reconciliation with God, reconciliation with each other, and with this creation. We'll close today by praying a prayer that Jesus has taught us, a prayer that expresses so much of what we have learned and experienced in these stories. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.